Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by senior editor Kathy Kelly and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is January 14th, 2022, and after a holiday break and a snowstorm, we're ready to launch the 2022 podcast season. While many of you were watching last week to see which teams would make the NFL playoffs on the final day of the season, we were waiting with bated breath to see what Medicare would say in its draft coverage decision on Biogen's Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm. The decision came January 11th, and unlike the overtimes and last-second field goals that characterized NFL Week 18, this one was not that much of a surprise. Kathy, did the decision seemed to irk a lot of the drug supporters, but you know what happened? Yeah, I mean, this was big news, um, just sort of for the basics, Medicare or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services released the draft national coverage determination on Alzheimer's drug, drugs January 11th. There'll be a 30-day comment period, and the final version is due to be released by April 11th. Um, so here's what it said. It proposes to cover drugs in the amyloid-directed monoclonal antibody class only when patients are enrolled in a CMS-approved randomized controlled trial or an NIH-sponsored trial under a policy known as Coverage with Evidence Development, or CED. Only one of the drugs um, in this class is on the market so far. That's Biogen and iSci's Adjahelm. But iSci has another drug in late-stage development and Eli Lilly and Roche do too. So this would impact them as well and presumably other drugs that might come along. Um, it was a surprise in some ways. Um, CED had been pretty widely expected as a likely outcome of this decision, but CMS did surprise many by choosing the strictest application of the policy in specifying that evidence development should be an RCT. Um, other possibilities would have been like observational studies based on a patient registry or claims data. So this was bad news for manufacturers. Um, some research experts estimate it would take at least four years before patients could gain access to a drug through a qualifying clinical trial if the decision is finalized in its current form. Um, and access could be limited to like just hundreds of patients in such trials if you take into account the number who would be on placebo. So what happens next? Um, CMS could finalize the decision in its current form or revise it. Um, Alzheimer's patient groups and drug companies are strongly opposing the decision, and they have 30 days to change CMS's mind. And that does happen, that uh, CMS changes its mind. A, a 2019 national coverage decision on the CAR-Ts originally included a CED requirement involving patient registries, but CMS ultimately dropped that in the final version. The final version could also be delayed. Um, this has been less talked about, but um, critics point out that CMS is making a decision to limit access to an entire class before key data on drugs in the pipeline has even been released, um, and they suggest the agency should wait to see that data before implicating all drugs. Um, some additional data is scheduled to be released in the latter part of this year, but since CMS is scheduled to issue, issue the final policy in early April, it looks like that data would not be taken into consideration in the final uh, decision. However, CMS has delayed release of a final NCD before, again with the CAR-Ts, that decision came out three months later than it was supposed to. Um, so what this all means, 
the practical effect of the de decision on Aduhelm may not be that dramatic relative to its current level of uptake. Um, providers have been opposed to administering the drug because they worry, like CMS, that the safety risks posed by the drug are not outweighed by a demonstrated benefit on cognition. But the decision would definitely undercut prospects for the pipeline drugs. Um, and then more broadly, the decision demonstrates a disconnect between the coverage standards at Medicare and FDA's approval standards. And it's an example of situations that payers are complaining about with respect to accelerated approvals in that FDA is allowing drugs on the market with inadequate data on benefit, leaving payers with the responsibility of deciding whether they're worth covering. So that's it in a nutshell. Yes. Yeah, Kathy, that's a, um, I, I know I was uh, um, also going to, uh, I'll curious for Derek's uh, powers of prediction, because uh, I also sort of thought it was a surprise, uh, not a uh, PAT by any means, if I can continue his uh, um, uh, <laughs> football analogy. So, uh, um, and, and and especially sort of the idea that we're kind of based on the data from one product, an entire class is being, uh, you know, mm -hmm. lumped into this uh, um, essentially, uh, um, you know, uh, no no coverage uh, um, uh, category, obviously, they can keep doing, keep doing yeah. trials. Is that, it seems to be an assumption that the FDA will continue to approve these based on the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the surrogate uh, amyloid endpoint that uh, um, uh, FDA or CMS is, is dubious about? I think so. I think that's the way the trials are designed, um, you know, for these other drugs. They're focusing on, you know, the amyloid plaque reduction. So uh, CMS is assuming that, and, and also these companies have said, well, I don't think Roche has, has said what, what they're going to do, but but uh, I say and Lilly have said they're going to seek accelerated approvals. So I guess CMS feels pretty confident that they're going to be facing the same situation with these other drugs. Can they can they run the confirmatory accelerated approval trials as like the approved trials for yeah. the coverage with evidence development? Yeah, that's a good question. I I, I think that's unclear. But it seems unlikely because CMS is pretty specific about how they want the trials to show, you know, an impact on cognition specifically. And, you know, again, I think these trials are, are focused on the plaque reduction um, mm. as the endpoint. So what I'm sort of hearing is that people are thinking that these trials probably would not qualify. That's so interesting. That, it that's interesting, especially in light of that the story you wrote, um, where you were you were quoting an Alzheimer's advocate who was saying the access could be curtailed for I think you said at least four years. Yeah. And it sounds like because you have to run multiple trials now to get it, you know, to make to wide to you know to widen the uh, the pa you know the patient yeah. population. Well, that's true. Um, whether you know a Biogen trial would only benefit their drug, probably. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and there's no, you know, there's nothing in this um, draft to indicate, you know, what might lead CMS to to sort of revise it and open up the market, you know, and, and roll back this, um, this requirement, whether, you know, there's a certain amount of data that would lead them to that um, conclusion is, is unclear, too. Uh, yeah, that must be particularly distressing for sponsors if there's no sort of roadmap to actual coverage, uh, you know, not that sort of CMS uh, um, usually does that in these situations. I mean, they're so unusual that it's sort of kind of not, uh, mm -hmm. um, not the kind of thing you can sort of point to sort of this, this right. being missing from a, from a decision, but uh, 
Right, but, not uh, a lot of precedent. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So just, you know, thinking, I'm, I'm going back a little further upstream now, but if if you're a company and maybe you're in, I don't know, just make it up, say you're in phase one and you've got a similar, a, a product that's similar to a lot of these ones that are in development, mm-hmm. you see this decision. Yeah. Do you, do you keep, do you realistically consider stopping? Mm-hmm. Because, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, like, Biogen and Lilly have spent way too much to stop, to just say, oh, this is ridiculous, forget it. But, you know, if you're still, you know, if you haven't gotten into the clinic yet, I mean, would this, would some, a decision like this squelch development? Yeah. Well, that's what, you know, advo- Alzheimer's advocates are saying. Um, I, I mean, I, I would think it would be, it would be pretty discouraging. Um, and I mean, I guess you would wait for the final, maybe before you pull the plug, but it would be, um, it would definitely be a, a problem, an <laughs> obstacle <laughs> um, for the future of the drugs. At the very least, I guess you'd have to, you know, the in- investors would want to see your plan for, mm-hmm. you know, the, the co- to get coverage and to do the, you know, the, the post-approval um, trials and you'd have to, you'd have to, fundraise for that in addition to everything else yeah yeah and in fact even biogen has said that they um are you know have under consideration or at least are kind of a, a possibility is we're kind of you know really not sort of going forward with Adjahelm. our our colleague yeah. uh, brenda sandberg wrote a story uh uh from their uh, um discussion with analysts saying this we're kind of you know if they can't get medicare coverage and given the dulcetory uh sales they have everywhere else it's you know something that they're Thinking about that, thinking about that, now that may of course be through kind of you know hyperbole and through kind of you know threatening to you know through kind of you know uh, you know no patients can have it if we can't have it on our our terms and who knows we're kind of how serious they are about that. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, you know if if a product, especially sort of a you know a not super cheap to manufacture uh, biologic, uh, you know doesn't doesn't sell much, you know no no company's going to continue to to uh, to pump it out for a non-existent uh, market. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. They were talking about that. There are a lot of questions from analysts at a, a, you know, a call that Biogen did yesterday morning, and yeah, there were a number of questions about, um, you know, if this is finalized, if this decision is finalized in its current form, you know, what does that mean for the future of Adjuhelm and and Lecanemab, the other the other drug that they're they're actually co-developing with Isay. Yeah, that's it, interesting, and and that leads to. A story that uh, related to this that our colleague um, Sarah Carlin Smith wrote this week about um, HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra ordering Medicare to re relook at its uh, 2022 premium price because Biogen had cut the price of Adjuhelm. Yeah. And the reason was the the reason the price was cut was in part because the demand was really low, and the reason the premium was set the way it was is because the thinking was everyone was going to want to take this and mm-hmm. they were going to have to, you know, they were going to have to generate some reserves to be able to cover the cost of that. So it's, yeah, it's, I thought that was a really interesting development. I mean, for one thing, the, when, when CMS announced that premiums for next year were going to be up by an unprecedented amount um, in part because they were anticipating you know, the costs from Adjuhelm and I guess presumably other uh, drugs like it um, really put a spotlight on 
the price. And I thought, you know, put a lot of pressure on Biogen because here's CMS sort of exposing the impact that, you know, high prices have on the general population. These were, you know, Part B premiums for everybody in Medicare were going to be going up because of the price of this drug. <laughs> and like you said, because they were assuming, you know, wide uptake, which of course hasn't hasn't materialized. But um, but it did, I think, put enough pressure on Biogen that they that they did um, cut the price in in half virtually. I don't think that was directly related to this national coverage decision. CMS keeps its coverage and payment sort of divisions pretty separate. So the coverage decision does not take price or cost into account. The the um, reimbursement and payment amounts are handled by a different group. And so I, I, I don't think that, you know, there, there was talk that Biogen may have cut the price in hopes that that would sort of ingratiate themselves <laughs> with CMS and, you know, help, you know, improve, you know, prospects for this coverage decision. I don't, I'm not sure of that. It also came just days before the, the um, decision was released. And I think that CMS had kind of, you know, decided what the proposal was going to be like, oh, you know, a little while ago. So um, it, it was interesting that two, two pretty big, um, events around that drug happened just within days of each other. You're right, Kathy. I mean, had, um, you know, the the premium setting folks known that there was not going to be uh, much coverage of uh, mm-hmm. um, Agihel, they certainly would not have generated all those negative headlines about, uh, you know, biggest Medicare premium increase in uh, in history and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff if they had uh, known that they weren't going to have to uh, worry about that. But uh, I do think there is... Um, you know, something of a sort of a dance between uh, um, CMS and the sponsors sometimes. Obviously, there's not supposed to be, you know, sort of kind of price mm-hmm. is not a coverage criteria, um, you know, under uh, um, CMS's, uh, um, uh, you know, regulations and uh, statute and uh, and so forth. But, uh, you know, look at some sort of incidents over the years with, uh, you know, Zevelin and the like, that's sort of kind of does seem like there is some sort of kind of uh, ability for the agency to push back in, uh, you know, for more subtle ways it's not an explicit sort of kind of european style like you know you just need to lower the price kind of negotiation but there uh there is sort of a signaling uh, um maneuver going on there and uh, um you know that's that's what it looked like uh, to me was going on and clearly sort of you're right about the uh the time frames for kind of the uh the time to announce the uh um the price cut if they're going to do it would be sort of much earlier in the uh um in the process and i feel like they they announced the, the cut was it uh, um you know a month or two ago so it wasn't sort of kind of uh, um you know right up against the, the uh the release mm-hmm. deadline, but it uh, um, did seem like uh, um, there was sort of a bit of a uh, um, a back and forth, even if not sort of kind of explicit negotiation. This was sort of kind of, sort of, kind of uh, you know signaling between the two camps as to what was uh, what was going on, and uh, it does seem like Becerra sort of kind of had some advanced uh, uh, knowledge, perhaps, of sort of what the uh, um, NDC was going to be if he could sort of kind of predict that sort of, kind of there wasn't going to be this uh, need for a premium increase when he announced his uh, instructions to uh, reconsider the. Uh, the premium increase. Yeah, well, I do. Um, I think we, we ran a story um, from Mike McCann saying who needs Build Back Better and the drug pricing provisions, including um, Medicare negotiation when, you know, Medicare can do it on its own and pointing to that example as a situation where, you know, that that announcement of the premium increase effectively led to a 50% price cut, <laughs> which, yeah, and I do think there probably, you, there might've been some 
Yeah, but you're not going to get that with you're not going to have that kind of leverage with every Everything. single drug. Definitely, especially not. a lot unique. of the generics. You're not going to yeah. be able to say like, you know, the, the the price of generic Advil is too high. We're going to have to raise yeah. Medicare rate. It, it no, work definitely. Out. <laughs> That's right. I mean, this is this was unique, and you know, this is a situation. Medicare's going to be responsible for like 80% of claims for these Alzheimer's drugs just because yeah, yeah. of demographics. And so, yeah, it was a unique um, situation, but. But it would be interesting if they tried it with some of the more expensive, like biologics and like cancer drugs and stuff where they're like in the top 10, Mm -hmm. you know, annually, you know, if if they said like, hey, this is why we're raising the premium and it's because of this, this and this. Yeah, except they probably wouldn't have the numbers, right? The the patient (laughs) numbers to really back that up. (laughs) They could say it, I guess. But, um, you know, the the numbers of patients taking those high cost drugs would would, you know, be nearly as many. Um, so, yeah. Although I do think they are expensive for uh, um, for Medicare. Uh, um, Kathy, I think you did a story about sort of looking at uh, you know the uh, accelerated approval drugs in, uh, um, mm-hmm. in Medicare and sort of there's some going to be some pretty some pretty big sellers in terms of sort of the um, the uh, the cost to the uh, um, the system for sort of kind of uh, you know things with uh, uh, with you know surrogate endpoint uh, support. Mm-hmm. So if uh, you know CMS did uh, um, come out and say we're we're only going to take uh, you know, sort of full approval, uh, um, you know, as our uh, as our criteria. Um, it's not entirely clear that that's what they're saying for with this uh, um, Agihelm thing, uh, of course. But uh, mm-hmm. um, I think that would be sort of pretty concerning for uh, um, for cancer uh, um, cancer products. Now, obviously, through kind of uh, um, cancer is a different dynamic. There's there was a lot of through kind of public outrage about you know the, these uh, um, about. Uh, as you have one, whether it worked or not, and uh, and, mm-hmm. and what have you, and that tends not to be through the uh, the issue with uh, um, the the objections to uh, to cancer drugs, just much more on the price. And yeah, there are people saying that oh, it doesn't really really sort of kind of give you that many more months of life or what have you right. for that price. But sort of, mm-hmm. but it's not the same kind of like does it even do anything? Uh, question that's sort of kind of has been uh, uh, raised about uh, um, as you right. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Before we move off of this, I wanted I wanted to try and connect this whole discussion back with the um, to the FDA as well, since we talk a lot about the FDA in this podcast. Um, so the agency made the controversial decision to give Adjuhelm accelerated approval. CMS is saying we're not sure it's ready yet. So the standards for the both the both organizations use are different, but does this validate the detractors who said FDA? jump the gun i mean i would think so yeah i mean that's uh you know certainly it, it is not uh you know produce the uh um the the market access and sort of kind of uh, you know uh, public availability that you would assume that uh, um uh, fda approval is uh, um is supposed to provide and so uh and usually um, does provide i mean yeah, usually yeah. medicare just cover it once fda approves yeah. it medicare just covers it so this was pretty unusual it is very interesting to think about sort of kind of different uh, agencies within the same uh, department of the, the same administration, kind of sort of coming come to sort of very sort of different conclusions about, uh, you know, this is not sort of kind of a, you know, policy decision in that uh, um, sense. It's sort of kind of it's broadly applicable. Really, sort of kind of it's very kind of uh, narrow sort of kind of one product in the FDA's case, and then sort of one class of product in the CMS's case. But there's definitely a, uh, a different uh, philosophy at work uh, in those two agencies right now. Mm-hmm. Do you think one influences the other, how the other thinks? I mean, it, it, something like this, I mean, would, you know, 
if you're a reviewer, you know, in FDA, are you going to, you know, obviously you're, you're reviewing stuff. You're not thinking about, is CMS going to cover this? But if you're kind of, you know, you're in the room, so to speak, and you're trying to make up your mind and it's one way or the other, if they, you know, is, could you, could that kind of creep into your mind? Like, well, is CMS going to say, you know, this isn't ready to go and they're not going to cover it. So maybe we should rethink it. I think that's a, it's a really good question. And um, there, there isn't a lot of communication or hasn't been, um, you know, between CMS and the reviewers. Um, and I think just in terms of sort of educating FDA reviewers, even, you know, for what Medicare is interested in, what kind of data they would be interested in would be helpful. Um, you know, there, there have been efforts to do sort of these parallel review um, mm -hmm. uh, exercises between um, CMS and FDA, but those have been limited to medical devices. And so, you know, to me, this is another example of, of where it would be useful in the drug area as well. Yeah, and that the whole uh, um, issue of uh, device coverage for uh, um, Medicare is for kind of very kind of, uh, um, you know, a, a tense one for that uh, industry. And there's office legislation along those lines. Uh, mm -hmm. Curious to see if there was for kind of be some uh, push in uh, um, in Congress that we're going to perhaps, uh, um, you know, reverse this in some way. Uh, um, you know, the uh, um, user fee uh, uh, legislations are kind of, uh, um, you know, must pass legislations or maybe sort of trying to attach something to that if we're kind of there's able to, you know, um, Alzheimer's advocates are able to rally around uh, um, around that in some way. But we're curious to watch kind of what the Hill reaction to this is. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen too much so far. I saw a statement from Bernie Sanders, but he said he called this a step in the right direction. <laughs> the uh, NCD. Um, yeah, they they refuse. A lot of senators refuse to criticize Janet Woodcock when she would appear at hearings after the decision. The you know, despite all of the uh, you know the public backlash. So. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it, I, I don't know if you could, I, I mean, I guess, you know, theoretically, Congress could do anything, but I don't know if they want to, if FDA wants them putting in provisions into laws saying you have to, you have to cover this or you have to approve that or mm -hmm. this seems like a, a bad precedent to, to set, given the, you know, with this, given we're trying to follow science and everything else. Mm -hmm. But they like, uh. Kathy said, "This is the final the final decision on on Agihelm is due April 11th. So, you know, we're we're all going to be you know closely closely watching this, and you know, probably around that week we'll all start holding our breath again. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, next up is more on the FDA advisory committee process. Uh, the number of uh, adcoms in 2021 hit another low with just 11 meetings to review pending new drug applications. That's the lowest number of meetings since the 2007 FDA law required all enemies to receive an adcom review unless the agency gives a reason not to. The drop in meetings also comes as the number of new drugs approved has jumped. The agency is now averaging about 50 approvals per year. So now we all know COVID forced a lot of changes to the advisory committee process, most notably driving them online and Pretty much everyone who listens to this podcast probably knows about the technical problems that they've had. We've complained about it. I'm sure a lot of people have seen it firsthand. Overcoming the digital hurdle has been a challenge. Sponsors have also complained about not being able to read the digital room, not being able to see members' faces and so forth. But Matt, do you think it's logistics that are causing the number of 
adcoms to decrease or is there something else going on here? I think it doesn't help. I think that's probably a minor factor, to be honest, um, because it's it hasn't like it through it hasn't through kind of fallen off a cliff from uh, you know sort of pre-COVID days. It's sort of kind of been sort of a uh, uh, a gradual uh, reduction, not a sort of a straight line, of course, but uh, um, you know it's sort of kind of been trending down for uh, um, for a while now. And uh, um, in many ways, uh, you know, I think the um, the virtual stuff can sort of kind of make it easier to get sort of people together in terms of sort of kind of schedules and the like in terms of not having to sort of kind of block off uh, many days for travel. But, uh, you know, uh, um, I think FDA certainly feels that sort of kind of that the uh, the virtual format is a uh, um, is a bad one. That was honestly, uh, you know, one of their uh, um, excuses for sort of, kind of why the uh, Agri Health Advisor Committee didn't, uh, um, you know, agree with them uh, on sort of kind of whether the product should be uh, um, should be approved. So it's uh, something that the uh, um, the agency is aware of, but uh, um, it's really not the uh, the only factor. Yeah, so th- this is an it, it this is an interesting discussion, and it, it'll be an interesting probably case study if if people ever like you know can figure out what some of the thinking was. It was was this as a coincidence where, as the FDA said, there were just a lot of drugs that didn't there weren't a lot of kind of lingering questions in the application that needed that kind of public discussion that they like to have, you know, was, you know, so you had a lot of slam dunk approvals. And so you just didn't need, you know, even if we weren't, you know, you know, all stuck in our, in our homes and so forth. I mean, there wouldn't have, they wouldn't have convened the meetings anyway. Um, it, it, I, yeah, I, I, Matt, I tend to agree with you that I think logistics had something to do with it, but yeah, I'm, I wonder if, it, if there were, yeah, I think that, I think there may have been, we, it may have been luck of the draw or just the randomness of having easy applications to approve. The other interesting thing that our colleague uh, Mike McCann pointed out in this story was that FDA now seems to be wanting to, it, the meetings they're, they're, they're calling are for applications that it looks like they're going to not approve, which somewhat makes sense. I mean, that, that makes sense because you know, the philosophy, part of the reason to have an advisory committee is to have a public discussion. So you can theoretically point out the flaws in, as well as the benefits of the applications. And, you know, if one, you know, with the idea that if the flaws are, you know, if it's made clear what all the problems are, then it, you know, the decision is not a, you know, kind of a, a huge surprise. We're also seeing with a lot of the COVID vaccines that, there are just so many incremental changes that often the advisory committees just can't add much to the discussion. And I'm wondering, you know, if some of that is in play too, they just feel like, you know, these are, you know, like I think we were saying before that these, these questions are, you know, we just can't think of anything to ask them. So, you know, why should we have a meeting? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think uh, um, Mike's uh, um, observation is uh, um, a quite a keen one. That's sort of kind of that the, Original intent of this law that sort of kind of you know makes the um, default position that sort of kind of FDA needs to have an advisory committee for a uh, new molecular entity, um, you know, uh, was sort of kind of to make sure that people were sort of kind of in some ways sort of kind of you know um, having a potential break on uh, FDA's approval of stuff. This was sort of kind of in the uh, um, you know the sort of the era of uh, all those uh, um, uh, you know uh, general. Uh, um, products were being withdrawn for uh, safety issues for kind of Vioxx and the like. And the, um, the, the, the feeling was that sort of kind of that there needed to be sort of kind of more uh, of a, an outside observation on sort of kind of what, uh, um, what FDA was uh, 
was doing as it was kind of racing out the door with uh, um with uh, with drugs uh, you know for better you know true or not that those were kind of the uh the intent uh, behind the law there there seem to be sort of kind of two fundamental reasons that uh fda holds advisor committees uh you know one is uh if they're generally confused about a uh a question on uh you know a matter of science or uh um you know through the regulatory approach and sort of kind of want uh, um outside feedback on the uh um on the question and then and then the other one and this seems to be sort of kind of uh, um honestly sort of kind of the uh the, the more prevalent one is if they want political cover for a uh, um, for a decision of uh, of uh, sort of a, a big uh, big importance. You know, I think through kind of that uh, um, that's a, a way of uh, you know uh, signaling to uh, sponsors well, sort of kind of here's here's why we didn't approve your drug because you know this that and the other thing and don't be complaining because through kind of uh, you know uh, um, no one agrees with you uh, anyway on sort of kind of that, that it should be approved. That's sort of kind of uh, a, uh, um, a reason that sort of uh, um, that they'll hold these kinds of uh, meetings. You know, of course, implicit in that uh, um, uh, sort of kind of uh, idea that sort of kind of that the advisory committee can give them sort of, kind of political support and cover is that, that if the advisory committee kind of disagrees with what the agency is doing, that it sort of, kind of becomes almost uh, becomes that much worse for them. You know, look at look at Adjahelm had the uh, advisory committee endorsed what FDA was. Uh, was doing, then uh, I don't think you would see sort of kind of have as much uh, complaining or sort of kind of uh, um, tumult about that uh, um, that product. But of course, the 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 FDA sort of kind of went in the opposite direction. You know, obviously, sort of kind of the um, accelerated approval wasn't discussed at uh, um, the advisory committee. That's one of the controversies about it. But sort of, but uh, you can see sort of kind of how that could have played out differently had uh, FDA sort of been able to get sort of kind of an outside endorsement of its uh, of its approach. So. Uh, um, that is uh, sort of something that the uh, the agency tends to be sort of kind of doing more and more often. Yeah. Well, and you saw the same thing with the with the COVID vaccines, where you know yes. they they were the the committee meetings were called in part to help you know build kind of confidence in in the products because there were you know rightfully questions about the development went really quick and you know in the trials were really you know. The trials came through really fast. The efficacy was really high. And, you know, how are we going to, you know, what are we dealing with safety and all these other kinds of, and, and, you know, all these other issues. And, you know, to a certain extent, you you did, they were able to build a lot of confidence, um, you know, with those meetings. But there were also, you know, and of course, I'm blanking on it now, but there were, I think there was at least one meeting where there were a bunch of, uh, several questions from the committee and, you know, where they weren't, you know, kind of, as enthusiastic about a move that the that um, Sieber was going to make on that front as Sieber had been, and um, you know, so it 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 can be kind of a, a double edged sword. Yeah, I, you know, I think uh, you know as the the number of uh, um, advisory committees kind of drifts down, I think the percentage of message advisory committees is just sort of going up. That's for kind of what uh, FDA seems to be using these uh, committees more often for is for kind of we want to communicate something to the public. You know, in the in the, the cases of the uh, the COVID vaccines, or we want to communicate something to the sponsors in the cases for perhaps a uh, a troubled application. So uh, you know, that's for kind of what the uh, um it's a uh, um it's it's a uh, microphone more than sounding board for the uh, um the agency at this point. It feels like sometimes. Yeah, and and also you know, Cedar is working on um you know some potent potentially uh, you know changes to the process itself that are you know. Th- Patricia Cavazzoni famously famously said uh, last year that she wants to get some of the emotion out of the meetings, which is you know, and get more and focus more on the scientific aspects of of those. So, 
maybe once those if those um, changes are put in place, we'll see some more meetings because they'll you know, they'll feel more comfortable about you know the discussion and or at least want to test the idea out, um, uh, whatever it is they they decide to do. But um, I wonder also if the user fee legislation could you know if something could uh, you know something could end up in in there or proposed for for um, for that bill you know, kind of maybe making it tougher for the FDA to give a reason not to have a meeting or other than just saying we didn't feel it was necessary, which is right. kind I mean, of what the, they do now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the the expectation, you know, for, from the FDA, um language about the advisory committee was this kind of, the, you know, the FDA, you know, should be doing this all the time. And then they cooked up this for kind of one sentence thing that they can sort of drop in the, uh, <laughs> the review saying, like, we didn't think it was necessary this time. Um, so you're right. This kind of if, they, if if Congress really 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 wants to see more advisory committees, there there should be a uh, some uh, some statutory sort of oomph they can put behind that idea. That's kind of to uh, to avoid the one sentence excuses that FDA has been uh, been offering. Another interesting issue that uh, you know as we go forward, we haven't seen an advisory committee yet this year, but uh, I think there's one coming up pretty soon. So yeah, yes. a couple of big ones. You know the um, the uh, the uh, uh, ODAC uh, based uh, uh, ODAC for products are you know based on uh, China only studies. Uh, you know we could uh, um, see the uh, you know the McKenna um, uh, appeal of its uh, um, the withdrawal action from uh, um, from FDA. Uh, you know there are a couple of uh, you know that uh, um, our colleague Sue Sutter has been writing about. Uh, so uh, um, a couple of uh, um, couple of things that. Uh, um, yeah, this could be could be very interesting meetings coming up. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Finally, today we're going to take a look at efforts to bring more drug production back to the U.S. Our colleague Bowman Cox wrote this week about a provision in the FY22 Defense Authorization Bill that required Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to brief House and Senate committees on efforts to develop new domestic active pharmaceutical ingredient production capabilities. The U.S.'s increased reliance on China for those materials is now viewed as a potential national security threat. Uh, among the issues to be discussed is the cost of developing domestic API production, as well as the cost of U.S. production compared to other countries. This briefing also could help create an outline for public investments in the area if they decide to do that. Um, you know, we've talked about this issue before. It you know it kind of it came up um, you know during the Trump administration. Um, but do you all think that this? I mean, could something like this, you know, putting it in a bill requiring these kind of briefings and, you know, outlining kind of things, you know, next steps and so forth. I mean, could that be a real catalyst for, you know, bringing this kind of stuff, you know, the, these this kind of manufacturing back to the U.S.? I, I'd like to think that, uh, um, you know, they're not sort of kind of uh, putting in all this effort just as we're going to do uh, do nothing. I mean, one of the things that has honestly kind of surprised me is for kind of the, uh, the lack of uh, broader uh pandemic preparedness that sort of that the uh the the current pandemic has uh has spurred there really doesn't seem to be sort of much of a uh a focus on sort of kind of uh preventing the next one that uh um you know that we're all sort of kind of worried about could be even worse than uh than covid you know obviously there's been the bush administration plan on uh um you know their uh, sorry the Biden administration plan on the uh, um apollo uh, program uh, in terms of sort of kind of uh, um you know sort of uh, um being able to uh deploy faster the next time for uh, um uh you know for this but that hasn't really gotten off the ground um i uh i don't know uh, you know if there's really sort of much of a um uh, actual constituency for this kind of uh legislation though it's it's a um it's kind of a hard sell to sort of kind of to say like you know we're going to have uh, uh, higher prices just in case you know i don't think that going to really sort of kind of uh, you know, drive a lot of people to uh, to vote for it, especially uh, um, you know in an election year. So uh, 
it's uh, um, always been something that's for kind of that uh, FDA has used as an argument for, for kind of uh, their manufacturing uh, um, initiatives. It's kind of when Janet Woodcock goes to the uh, um, goes to the hill and talks about advanced manufacturing for kind of uh, you know onshoring is for kind of one of her uh, um, one of her arguments there. Uh, you know um, what FDA is pushing isn't necessarily for kind of something that would uh, sort of kind of force onshoring, but it's for kind of I think it's a good way of for kind of uh, you know sort of uh, you know, getting people to sort of kind of uh, uh, um, be interested in the changes that uh, you know that she and the FDA would like to see. So uh, um, it's a good uh, political argument. I'm just not sure it's a uh, it's a winning one in terms of sort of kind of getting sort of kind of actual legislation that would sort of kind of really sort of force uh, um, companies to start uh, um, making things here again. Well, yeah, that's what I keep coming back to: is what's the incentive to do it? You know, I mean, are you going to, you know. Are, are you going to give them, uh, you know, some kind of tax break to keep the prices the same? I mean, is there, I, I, don't, I don't know, you know, is there some way to, you know, because, you know, like you said, you have to figure out a way to overcome the cost of, you know, the additional cost of making it here as opposed to overseas. And, then, you know, the, the other the other argument that's been put out there is that, you know, we, we need to have the the surge capacity in place if there's an emergency, but what do you do when there's not an emergency? Do you pay somebody to just kind of run it just to keep it keep the equipment clean? Or yeah, I, I mean, I'm not a manufacturing expert, so I don't know you know what has to be done, but I know you can't just leave it. Yeah, the the catchphrase is gather dust. Keep the facility yeah. warm, Derek. That's I think that's the uh, the buzzword now these days. It's you got to yeah. keep the facility warm in case you. In case you need it, so uh, yeah, I'm not, yeah. Uh, it's so uh, so yeah. I don't know, you know. Yeah. I don't know if you know how. The, I I there's got to be a way to you know they have to figure out a way to do that to do that. Um, you know, is there a plan? Is there maybe you need to do some research to figure out the best way to do that? I mean, the other thing that you know, and maybe this this is probably part of the research agenda too, is that Dr. Califf talked about during his um, confirmation hearing this idea that. There could be portable manufacturing, and I think he talked about it in the um, uh, in relation to vaccines, where you just—I mean, it, the simple way to think about it is it's like a box, and you just ship it somewhere, and you open the box, and it can immediately start making vaccines or you know antivirals or whatever it is you know you're trying to make, and then when you're done, you just pick it up and you send it wherever else you want it to go. If we, you know, if they can do that kind of portable model maybe that makes more sense for domestic onshoring you know at least from the the emergency part of it but yeah i don't know it this is this has always been a tough a a tough one to kind of figure out i don't know if we're i don't know how how they're going to get there well that's all for this week for more check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com you can also find this in previous podcast episodes on itunes google play TuneIn, soundcloud and spotify by searching for pharma intelligence And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Kathy Kelly and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time. 